Wow. Two incredibly uplifting and encouraging songs right in a row, just thrilling my heart. I love you, and it is such a joy to come and share the gospel with you today and to rejoice. Second Corinthians chapter 5, to rejoice together today in the very thing we've just sung about. Oh, how wonderful. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, to, to preach this and to proclaim this glorious truth that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. How precious are these words and how thankful are we as a people to gather today and to proclaim this gospel. Move us now with hearts filled with fire as Jeremiah, the, the, the fire is in the bones and he cannot help but speak of the things that he knew. We are, are, are ones who can testify to the greatest truth ever known. The life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus our Savior. We rest in this and rejoice in this today. So Father, gather our hearts together as one in unity around the cross today to rejoice in Jesus and to proclaim the glory of him. In his name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul, as all of the apostles, centered his preaching upon the resurrection of Jesus. When Peter stood and gave the first sermon, the Pentecost sermon, what he boldly proclaimed was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so today, that's what we come and we proclaim. And as you saw the context for our central text today, our central text is 521, 2 Corinthians 521. So you can kind of go there and, and look. But there was a context leading up to it. And that context was this idea that there is a day that every human being is going to give an account to God. And that there was a certain fear that accompanied that knowledge. For those who are not right with God, it was the fear of the judgment itself. For those who were in Christ, it was the fear of being good stewards in the presence of Christ with this gospel that we proclaim. So Paul said, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. What he had dedicated his life to was convincing men and women, boys and girls all over the world, that Jesus was God's Son, born of a virgin, lived sinlessly, died as our substitute, and on the third day was raised from the dead. And then, after 40 days, and appearing to the apostles and the disciples, he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God until all is brought before him for that day of accounting. And Paul had a burning fear in his heart that he wanted to be a good steward with this glorious message of salvation. And because he preached this message, two groups had viciously attacked his life. Those two groups are represented at the crucifixion. The groups are those who are the religious, represented in the crucifixion 
by the Jews who turned Jesus over and gave him up. Those religious people were counting on their morality to get them into heaven. They were counting on the fact that they felt like they had an inside track, either through birth, or through their religion, or through their sacrifice, or through their deeds of religious work. They felt like they had an inside track on God, and so they were certainly going to be right with Him and be in heaven. And Jesus had confronted them, and Paul followed that tradition, confronting them, because the resurrection itself attests to the fact that religious works are insufficient to bring about our salvation. But another group was gathered against Jesus, and that was the Roman authorities representing the pagans who did not want God to make a claim on their lives. They felt like that they should be able to observe this pantheon, this multitude of gods in whatever way they felt would be pleasing to those gods and that they would not have to give an account other than the sacrifices and religious services that the pagans would occasionally take part in. And so these two groups represented at the crucifixion the same groups that are hounding and challenging Paul. And Paul is writing to the church saying, hear his words, We are not again commending ourselves to you, verse 12, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. Why would Paul be asking this church to be proud of him? Why would he be writing them saying, we're giving you an occasion not to commend ourselves to you, but for you to be proud of us? What could that church be proud of him for? Well, it was this, that in spite of the challenge of the Jews and the religious people, Coming against him, stoning him, leaving him for dead, chasing him, hounding him, beating him with rods, beating him with whips, imprisoning him, all of these things that they did. He had stayed faithful to this one message. Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead. And in spite of the fact that the Romans had come against him, and they had beaten him, and they had imprisoned him, and they had threatened his life and pursued him, He still stuck to this one message. What he was saying to the church is, Church, be proud of the fact that in spite of the onslaught of the religious and the irreligious, I have stuck to one message no matter what anybody thought of me, no matter what it cost me, no matter what it will eventually cost me, I've stuck to this one message. What is that one message? It's there in verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. He's just summarizing the gospel. But that gospel makes a claim on the religious and the irreligious. It makes a claim on the religious to say, your morality and your religion cannot save you. No heritage that you have of where you've been born, to whom you've been born, or what church you were born into, or what church you were raised in, none of that can lay claim on God. No amount of morality and religious deeds can say before God, I am going to get into heaven because of what I've done. I don't know if you followed the news this week, but Mayor Bloomberg, former mayor of New York City, 
made a statement this week. He's giving $50 million to fight against the, um, the people who support the Second Amendment. And, and as a contributor of that money and as a man who gives money in different ways, here's what he said this week. He said, if there is a God, I know that I'm going to heaven. I have earned my right to be there. It's not even close. You can look that up. I just got my phone out and looked back at it again to make sure I was getting the quote reasonably accurate from him. Here's a man who's trying to lay claim by his morality and by his works trying to lay claim on God, and so the resurrection says no. The gospel says no. To the religious and to the irreligious, it makes the same claim, and that is there is nothing that you can do that can make you right with God by your deeds and your actions, and you have no claim against Him, and that you have actually a claim by Him on your life. He has a claim on the moralists. He has a claim on the pagans. He had a claim on the religious. He has a claim on the irreligious. And so Paul is facing that down. And so as he faces it down, he sees himself and he sees the church in a very important role in all of history. And that is the role of reconcilers. We stand, the church, the believers stand between God and the world. And we plead with people who are religious and think their religion is going to get them to heaven, who are irreligious and may not even care about heaven. We stand and we plead with them, be reconciled to God. And so Paul speaks of that in verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word or the ministry of reconciliation. And so what is the church doing all over the world today on Easter Sunday? We're doing the ministry of reconciliation. We're making a bold statement. Religion is not going to get you to heaven, and irreligion is not going to let you ignore the demands of God on your life. The resurrection makes a bold and sturdy and eternal statement to the religious and the irreligious, and that is, be reconciled to God. And then Paul takes some time to lay out the reconciliation. So that's why we're in verse 21 today. We're going to begin, number one, rejoice in the perfection of Jesus. In verse 21, translators for ages have wrestled with how do we present this text? Because it's as densely packed, few words, as anywhere in the New Testament. Extremely densely packed, so much so that we end up with almost double the amount of English words trying to say what is said in the New Testament text. Because it's so profound, but the very first thing he says in the text in its original is it says, He who knew no sin. The very first thing that Paul affirms in the gospel message is the perfection of Jesus. You read there, he made him who knew no sin. Now the English has been rearranged maybe to give a better flow, but in the text it says, 
He who knew no sin. It introduces the thought with this idea, the perfection of Jesus. When we deal with the resurrection, we've got to deal first with the perfection of Jesus. He knew no sin. He had no relationship with sin. He was morally absolutely pristine, perfect. His motives were absolutely perfect in every way. Anytime he went to do anything, he did it out of the absolute purest motive of pleasing his Father and doing what was right. Every action, every word, every deed, every moment, every minute, every day, every second, there was never a time that Jesus' moral perfection was not displayed by his actions and his motives under those actions were absolutely, absolutely perfectly pure. His desires, everything he ever desired was perfect. He desired the Father's will. He desired the salvation of men and women and boys and girls. He desired the Father to receive glory. He desired for people to be forgiven. He desired that lepers be cleansed and that dead be raised. He desired that the sick be healed and that demons be cast out. He carried out in perfection, absolute perfection, the great, wonderful, perfect desire of God in flesh. His model was perfect. We have, in all of our ministry, copied the model of Jesus through time. We know that he modeled everything from the sternness and righteous anger of cleansing the temple to the tenderness of taking a child into his lap and blessing and saying, unless you become repentant and like this little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. When he reached out and took his glorious pure hands and laid them on the lepers, he was modeling a ministry of mercy that the church has followed ever since. His ministry was perfect in every way. His preaching was perfect in every way. He was the perfection of mercy in every act that he did. When we observe the resurrection, we have to observe who it is first that we're talking about. Jesus is perfect. And there is nothing in him that is not the most glorious of all perfections that there can be. And so as he marches to the cross, he marches as one who has no sin, no blemish, no stain, no fault, no bad motive, no lack of mercy. Everything is absolute in perfection. This qualifies him for everything that follows. All through the Old Testament, you're seeing this process of sacrifice. And over and over again, it says that the sacrifice shall be spotless. It shall be blameless. It shall be clean. It shall be healthy. Picturing what Jesus is going to be. He who knew no sin. When you read the original text, the next thing the text says, it says, the one not knowing sin, and then it says, in our place. 
So the second thing we look at today as we study the resurrection is rejoice in the place that Jesus took. It says, on our behalf. This is two times he said it in the same text. If you will go back up to verse 15, the last line is, he rose again on their behalf. He died on their behalf. So there's this idea that Jesus is taking someone's place. Now this is very important in understanding the resurrection because what is Jesus doing? He is actually taking our place in a particular way. He's not just a stand-in. You know, you see people do stand-ins all the time. If you watch movies, you have a stuntman, and he's a stand-in. And that stuntman, um, he's not the same person. He stands in and he carries out a stunt woman, stands in, they carry out the task, but they're really in so many ways so radically different that if you zoom in on there, you'll see that in that movie that that person really doesn't even look like them. You can stop and go slowly through some of those scenes in action movies and go, that person doesn't even look like the character that they're playing. Now, here's something that's happening in Jesus' life. I don't know if, 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 if you've kind of pondered this, but he's not just taking our place. It's not like he kind of bumps us out of the way and says, wait, 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 let me, let me, you know, stand in for you. It's not like that. In a way that is beyond our comprehension, he's actually becoming us. I want you to notice the carefulness with which Paul writes this. He says, the one who knew no sin in our place, sin became. Or sin, he was made. Jesus is not just on the cross kind of nudging you out of the way. He is taking everything that you are. And it is coming into him. He's taking every act, every deed. He is first becoming sin itself. I don't know what you hate the most or what offends you the most. I don't know what particular sin that you look at and you are aghast by it. But the Bible says that Jesus in all of this glorious perfection at this moment, here's what's happening. He's becoming you. It's not just bumping you out of place. Your thoughts, every thought you have ever thought that was heinous and vile runs through his mind. Every deed you have ever done comes into his being. Every sinful, vile act, thought, action, motive, every last one of those comes into His being. It says that God made Him sin in your place. And so the totality of what sin is, Jesus becomes. The pollution, the perversion of it, he takes into himself. I don't know 
if you can remember in your life the very first time you ever felt guilt. As a child, before your conscience was seared and hardened by all the things that went on in life, in that first moment that you ever felt a real thing called guilt, and, and it was shocking to you what it felt like, Jesus has felt in his being the totality of the guilt of every one of your deeds. The emotional upheaval that comes with it. The emotional destruction from sin. The brokenness. The victimness. All of those things enter into His being. And because He is an infinite being and sin is finite, He is able to take the, this incredible vast amount of sin and sinfulness and guilt and bring it into Himself, and listen carefully, and process it all. To feel every twinge of guilt we should have ever felt. To feel every moment of conviction that ever should have set in. To feel every last thing. He stood before His Father guilty of everything we've done. With it came the genuine shame. I don't know when you ever first felt shame that followed guilt. But there's that moment of guilt when you know down inside, but there's that moment of shame when somebody outside of you is viewing what you've done or you're afraid that they will. And the thing you hope most is that they'll either not find out or if they find out, they won't reject you. Listen carefully. As that guilt is coming into the being of Jesus and He is absorbing the guilt of every one of our deeds, as He is absorbing the shame of it, he looks at his father in that condition and feels this one thing. He feels the father turn his face. And in an agony beyond our comprehension, as the Rampant guilt settles in as he is sin. As the shame begins to make him feel, no, no, the one thing, if you look at me and see this, the one thing I fear most, don't reject me. And then you hear his words on the cross, he says. What does he say? My God... My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Have you ever been so ashamed of someone and what they've done that you turned your head? Because you could not bear to look on what they've done. Here in this moment, 
Christ is taking all of this sin into himself, all of this guilt into himself, all of this shame into himself, all of this emotional devastation into himself, and he now is experiencing the thing that we fear most, the thing that we would fear on the day of judgment when we would stand before God and he would say, Depart from me! All of a sudden, something happens in Christ we can't imagine. The Father turns. Separation occurs. And he, he screams in agony far beyond that of any nail, of any thorn, of any spear, of any whip. He screams out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then in that moment, the raging fire of hell and all that hell is, is swallowed into his being. Whatever an eternal hell looks like, tastes like, smells like, feels like, is drawn into an infinite being, and he feels every bit of it. He suffers the full penalty for an eternal hell for all of our sins. And he takes that into himself. And he says... I thirst. Paul is not wanting us to get away from the reality of the gospel. This love of Christ that controls him is a love where he understands how perfect and undeserving Jesus is of this punishment and how how Jesus stood in and he who knew no sin all of a sudden becomes the thing that he hates most. He becomes sin. And all of its consequences and all of its punishment and all of its rejection and all of its pain and all of its shame and all of its remorse and in the fullness of how it should have been in all of us when we sinned and how we should have felt about every sin and every action, He feels all that at once. And He cries out, I thirst. But if you will follow the reading in the text, in, in the English it comes first. In the, in, the, in the New Testament language Greek it comes last uh, in this particular phrase. When you're reading through the, the New Testament language it says, the one who knew no sin, in our place, sin, he was made. And the he in that passage is God. And so the third thing is to rejoice in the participation of God. The gospel is so clear about God's participation in the death of Jesus. You hear it all through the Bible. It's illustrated in Genesis chapter 3. When, what happens? When Adam and Eve sin, God is the one that takes the animal, and God is the one who slays the animal, and God is the one who takes the skin of the animal, and God is the one who places that skin upon Adam and Eve. Then we get to Isaiah 53. 
verse 10, and it says, The Lord was pleased to crush him. We get to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. It says, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Mark 14, 7, Jesus quotes that passage about himself. God is participating in the crucifixion by pouring all of his wrath upon his son Jesus in a plan that happened before time began that Jesus would take our place, bear our wrath, forbearing our sin, and that that would be paid for. And so God is a part of this plan, bringing about He made Him sin. And so God is pouring what should have came to us onto Christ. But something happens from that. And this is the glory of this passage. It says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we... <laughs> this is where the changes. It's got the horror of the crucifixion, the horror of the sin and the becoming and the dying and the wrath, the horror of that. And then it turns and it says that we, so number four, rejoice in the product of His work. This is glorious. What is the product of His work? It says that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Something else happens here. He is infinite. He takes this finite amount of sin and this eternal condemnation for our sin. He swallows it into himself. But he has reserves because he is the infinite God of the universe. And he not only eats that into himself and destroys our sin and puts it away, something comes behind that. He now takes his righteousness and he pours it out and covers and clothes every one of us so that when God the Father looks upon us now, he's looking at Jesus. And we are now the children, the sons, the daughters of the living God. He doesn't just do something for us. He does something in us. There was a story of a woman who had been a debtor. Back in the days that when you were a debtor, you were cast into a debtor's prison. Now, whether the story is true or just an illustration, I've not been able to track down, but it's a beautiful picture. A woman who was in debt, thrown into debtor's prison, and there in that prison daily, she would look out the bars of the window and wish for, hope for, long for some way out of that prison, but there was none. Her abilities were not such that she could pay off her debt, and so she was kept and she was held there. And day by day, she would look out the window, and one day this man passed by the window and he looked into her and he passed by the next day and he looked into her and he passed by the next day and he spoke to her and he passed by the next day and he spoke again to her and he started a conversation and he had some correspondence with her and one day someone came to the to the, the gate of the jail that she was in where the doors were shut and, and, and locked and they came and they said, the man who has been passing by day after day has a proposal for you and he has proposed something and I will give you this letter and there in the letter the man had made a marriage proposal to the woman in the debtor's prison. And she said, I can't believe this. I can't believe that this could be true. 
And sure enough, she opens it up, and there is the proposal of marriage. And all she has to do is say yes. And with quivering hands, she says, yes, yes, I've heard from him. I've talked with him. We have corresponded, and, and, and I, I will. And so suddenly, the door flings open, and she comes out. And all of her debt is paid, but something more glorious. This man was the wealthiest man in town, and he had fallen in love with her. And on the day of their wedding... Not only are her debts paid, but all that he owns and has becomes hers. She now shares in the wealth of all that he has. The day that you came to Christ, the wealth of Jesus became yours, and you became a co-inheritor of all of the universe. This is his love for you, not just to pay your debt, but to bring you to God the Father to bring you in and to rejoice in the product of His work, giving you His righteousness so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so then we come to number five. And Paul had already mentioned this, rejoice in the proof of His work. What was the proof of Jesus' work? He mentioned it back in verse 15. It's implied here. But in verse 15 it says, And He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. There's this glorious picture of Jesus not just carrying out this work, not just bringing salvation through becoming sin, not just bringing salvation by bearing the punishment, not just bringing salvation by giving to us His righteousness, but proving it through a specific deed. You see, the resurrection of the dead is the thing that confirmed every other thing Jesus said and every other thing Jesus offered. Paul said it this way, If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. But the dead are raised, and Christ is raised, and we are witnesses of that. Now, what happened is, is that in a sense, um, on the cross, Jesus was writing a check. He was writing a check. He was writing a check that paid for our sins, paid the debt we owed. He was writing a check to absolve us of our debt to God. Now, I need to ask y'all something. When... (laughs) When does a check become good? Somebody said it. When it has the money in account, but there's a word for it. When it's cleared, not when it's cashed. Look, if you go in and you cash a check, and that check bounces, it's coming out of your account. So it's when the check clears. The check clears means that there was sufficient funding in the account to to pay what was promised. So on the cross, Jesus was writing a check. And during those three days, the check went through the system. Don't know all of what happened during those days. It's an absolute mystery. Don't know all of what transpired in those days. But on that third day, here's what happened. 
God said on Resurrection Sunday morning, the check has cleared. You're free. You are free to go. And what he was saying on that day, he was crucified for our sins. The Bible says he was raised for our justification because the check had cleared. Now listen carefully. Mayor Bloomberg is writing a check for his own soul. And he thinks a $50 million check and a few other million dollar contributions are going to buy that if there is a God that he knows he's going to heaven, it's not even close. And here's what's going to happen. On the day of his death, his check is going to bounce. And he is going to be found guilty of his own sin. And what I'm afraid of is that you're here today and through your religion, through your church attendance, through your morality, through your philosophy, through something about yourself that you've been writing a check that you think is going to clear the eternal bank for your soul. But here's what Jesus said. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, on the day that you die, there's going to be one of two things. You're either going to have a check bounce and get an NSF notice from God that will take you from this life into an eternal hell and you will there, without any other hope, spend the eternal, eternal, eternal time trying to pay for something you thought you were paying for on earth that you can't pay off in hell and you will never escape. But if you would today, this morning, understand that Jesus has written a check for your soul and that if you would repent of your sins and believe the good news that the check is already cleared and that this very morning, God will forgive you. Would you bow with me? I don't want you to leave today thinking that you're good to go unless you understand this gospel message. Jesus, perfect. Jesus in your place. Jesus under the Father's wrath. Jesus doing all of this and being raised from the dead is proof. He is paid for your sins. And so I want to invite you with all of my heart. I, and Paul said it this way. God is imploring through me, be reconciled to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Would you today believe this good news? Would you repent? Say, Pastor Bart, what do I do? Well, it's this way.
you need to first off understand your account's already overdrawn. So let's don't go there. Your sin has already created a debt in you you can't pay off. Don't start counting things down. You know it's true. And resultantly, there is a debt against you, a claim against your soul, that if you enter into eternity unpaid, that you will enter into eternal condemnation in a place called hell. And so just, just begin. I'm a sinner. That's what I am. I am a sinner. I can't fix it. I got a debt I can't pay. But I believe, God, that you sent Jesus and that these things are true. He died becoming sin and bearing your wrath. And he took my place. And I received that today. I repent of how I've lived, religiously or irreligiously. I trust Jesus. Did you know that if you do that right now, you'll never be ashamed? For whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. Whoever shall call upon him shall never be ashamed. Would you believe him today and trust him? Would you call upon him even with me right now? Dear God, I see my sin and I know I'm a sinner. Would you, because of Jesus taking my place, forgive me? I repent of what I've done. I repent of my sin and my self-righteousness. And I believe this gospel. Save me. Forgive me. Thank you, God. If you called out in sincerity today, God is able to save you. He knows your heart. And I want to invite you to publicly proclaim Him. To come down today and say, all bets are off. I know my debt. I'm following Jesus. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Some of you have been walking at a guilty distance from God. And I want to encourage you on this glorious day of celebration of the resurrection, what Christ has done for you. Don't be ashamed. Come and be refreshed and renewed. Repent. Be restored to fellowship with him as a believer. As God moves your heart and calls you, would you stand and would you come? Kevin and I and Wendy and Steve will be down front. We invite you to come and express your faith in Christ or even your repentance of sin to come and pray with us. Would you come this morning?